So in these last talks of the course of the retreat, I want to try to draw together some of the threads we've been uh, discussing and exploring in practice, talking about, and also to elaborate on and fill out a little bit some of the threads and themes that we've been, and ideas that we've been talking about and exploring. And in elaborating and filling out, uh, in a way taking them a little bit further and opening some doors, hopefully, uh, for, for the mind, for the views, and also for practice and possibilities in practice, possibilities of experience, meditative experience, exploration. So in opening doors, what often happens is uh, we go through a door and it brings up more questions, uh, as well as uh, providing some answers and providing a structure uh, to a certain extent. Sometimes, and what may be the case with some of what I'm going to be talking about, some of it might seem like I'm creating, we are creating more loose ends, or creating a certain structure um, uh, building a certain structure, but also leaving leaving structures and ideas, possibilities incomplete. And uh, that may well be the case uh, for some of this, and then there'll have to be another retreat, another course, hopefully. Uh, also, over the course of these next three talks, uh, some, some of the ideas um, will be familiar to some of you, and some less so. I mean, just please hang in there if some of the concepts and um, ideas that we're talking about uh, sound difficult and hard to understand. Um, just hang in there if you can. And what I'm going to do is in the third talk especially give examples. So hopefully it will, um, it, it will come clear, perhaps a repeated listening, perhaps through the examples, etc. So hang in there um, if that is the case. So remember at the beginning of the retreat, uh, we talked about really the context, the cultural context and historical context in which um, everything that we've been talking about on this retreat, introducing the whole idea of imaginal practice um, and all of that, in a way, the cultural context in which it lands. Uh, and particularly the unquestioned assumptions, the, the views, the very sense uh, that we have of personhood, my person and other, other, uh, other persons, and what, what a person is, um, and so that these ideas are, as I said, landing in that context. They're meeting... Um, ideas and views and assumptions that we've just imbibed um, uh, from the culture, usually unquestioningly, so they become really how we view things, how we sense things. They become, they seem for us a reality. So views, assumptions, uh, senses of personhood, of the world, of the cosmos, and also of uh, imagination. So we talked a little bit about this. And it's worth revisiting it and filling it out a bit more. So the, if you like, what I'm going to call the modernist uh, sense or conception or assumption about personhood 
and I'd just like to quote something from a writer called Clifford Gertz. Now he actually he wrote a book called From the Native's Point of View, and he's in a way comparing uh, Western senses, uh, conceptions of things, with the na- uh, what he called native point of view. Um, and so just listen to this. The Western conception of the person, I'm going to call it the modernist, but let's say the Western conception of the person as a bounded, unique, more or less integrated motivational and cognitive universe, a dynamic center of awareness, emotion, judgment and action, organized into a distinctive whole and set contrastively both against other such wholes and against a social and natural background is, however incorrigible it may seem to us, however obvious and sort of unbudgeable almost it may seem to us, a rather peculiar idea within the context of the world's cultures. So often we take all this for granted and we assume it's a reality uh, rather than uh, a sort of um, momentary, uh, if you like, a, a transitional phase or a period in the history of a certain culture where hu- certain human beings viewed things and sensed things in that way, in this case, the personhood. So it's quite a, um, a dense passage, but it really captures the sort of intuitive sense of personhood and self that we uh as I said, inhabit, because it's in the air and the culture, we imbibe from the culture. Now, kind of alongside that, or, or if you like, making a strange marriage with that sort of more intuitive view that we imbibe, we've imbibed from the culture, making a strange marriage with that, uh, for Dharma practitioners in the modern West, um, come other views, m- m- mixed with or making it this strange sort of juxtaposition with. For instance, um, what's quite popular is the view that the, the, the self is um, a process. We've talked about this. It, it's, uh, there is no self. What the self is, is a process. So everything else is an illusion. What's real is this process of aggregates of psychophysical constituents in time. This sort of atomized process uh, going along in time like some kind of uh, I don't know, computer readout or machine-like process of <coughs> physical processes and feelings and uh, perceptions and mental formations and consciousness, moments of consciousness. Uh, and so there's a strange marriage between the, the view that Clifford Gibbs describes and uh, that, that sort of intuitive view of, of the self and the, 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 the integrated, more or less integrated, sort of bounded self that he describes there, the person, and then this atomized process view. Or perhaps another popular one is that the, the interconnectedness is the ultimate truth. Of uh, that's that's how we should view self. So what typically happens in um, in uh, people who are practicing modern dharma very under- very understandably is that we uh, person tries to cling to a philosophical view, 
that the self is, the person is an atomized process, or has sensed that, has glimpsed that as um, a perception in practice, and then tries to cling to it, to hold on to it. And then there's a strange sort of marriage, as I said, trying to mix the two between uh, the, 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 the view of what Gertz describes and, and this sort of the view of an atomized process or the view of interconnectedness. Uh, either mishmash together in some kind of way, or one battling the other, and different ones dominant at different times. And there's a clinging to view or clinging to an experience, and trying to perpetuate that experience in some cases, or at least clinging to a view philosophically. It's really worth noting that uh, I would say the Buddha's teaching about anatta and the emptiness of self. All self-views in that teaching, all self-views, without exception, are regarded as empty, not ultimately true. So it's not that the Buddha, in my view, was saying the self is an atomized process, or the self is um, the field of interconnection, the web, the ocean of interconnection, whatever you want to call it, or some other view of self. Rather, all self-views, no self-view whatsoever, um, is is the truth, the ultimate truth. And what that does, actually, as when we really realize that and take that as um, an avenue, what opens a door through of, of practice, is then actually we are free to use, to step into, to put on, if you like, as garments and and as lenses, all kinds of self-views, knowing keeping the knowledge um, while viewing in a certain way, while viewing self and person in a certain way, this is not real, this is not the truth. Because all of them are untrue, it frees us up to use any of them. But the particular popular ones nowadays, I mean, could, could list a whole bunch, but let's just say those, the atomized process or this view of interconnectedness, and interconnectors may be something, come back to you later, just this is a kind of a, an aside for now. I don't want to lose track of the main point. But um, interconnectors is an interesting teaching when we kind of poke at it a little bit more. It's interesting what, what is meant and implied and not implied in the teachings of interconnectedness. So usually it's, uh, I hope I'll return to this later in, in the later talk, but talks, but uh, we imply something of like the, the physical processes or events that make up my body uh, and even my uh, brain, my, my, my organism and that of others are, are connected over space and time. This physical event here, this physical process here is interconnected with others or actually all physical processes over space and over time. Or um, mental ideas uh, for example, I hear a teaching, or I read a book, or some idea in the culture, or something like that, is are also con- interconnected, connected over space and over time. So there is, if you like, uh, in the teaching of interconnectors is what I would call horizontal, physical uh, processes and events are connected with other physical processes and events, mental uh, 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 events, if you like, are connected or influence other mental events. 
There's at the same level of being, the same dimension of being, there's a horizontal interconnectedness, though we, uh, of course, admit that the physical state of things affects the mental, and the mental, the physical. Essentially, it's a teaching that um, does not, uh, how would you say, um, uh, draw attention to, or admit, or emphasize uh, an interconnectedness between um, dimensions of being, or invite the idea that there are other dimensions of being apart from the physical. So it's a horizontal teaching rather than the vertical. And that's an aside for now. I'm just throwing that out as, an aseed, as a seed. The main point here is, uh, again, what is the context of these ideas that we're talking about? So the modernist context of the modernist person, as Gertz described, or mixed, strangely, strange marriage with kind of um, clinging to certain Dharma, Dharma views and holding onto them as philosophies, the atomized process or interconnectedness, and also the context of what is a, the, the modernist view or assumption or sense of reality of what the cosmos is. Uh, and that cosmos being um, essentially physical matter, atoms moving, um, bumping into each other and uh, in, in kind of meaningless movement and interaction of matter over vast stretches of space and time, which um, over vast stretches of, stretches of space now give rise to consciousness in some way that scientists haven't figured out yet. Um, and uh, and so there is a kind of level, but uh, a two different levels: consciousness and matter. But that consciousness is an emergent property of of the physical of matter. And so that's the modernist view of the cosmos. Not everyone believes that, and we may battle that in some ways. But what that then means in terms of the context of um, the context of my personhood, of our personhood, the context of um, my life and, and the trajectory of my life and what gives meaning to my person and my life, the context of my Dharma practice, my view of Dharma, my spiritual practice with something else, all of that takes place, if you like, within a context of what we could call uh, a philosophy of materialism, that, that matter is the primary reality. Um, a better word is, is physicalism, and don't confuse materialism as in the, the chasing of um, expensive cars and um, iPhones and all that kind of stuff, um, with, with this philosophy of the physical matter is the, the primary and the only reality, and everything else emerges out of that, and if it's not material, it's illusory. Or if it doesn't have its roots in matter, it's illusory. Um, so what this means is that the, 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 the context um, of everything that I do, my person, my life, my practice, my uh, all that, and whatever meaning I chase, is within this um, essentially physical it's, uh, universe. Within Everything's taking place within physicalism. And it's so easy not to realize that these are views and assumptions about uh, a p- personhood and what a person is and what the cosmos is are perspectives. They are perspectives. What I would call ways of looking. 
they are not complete truths. Absolutely not. Um, they ori- originated, uh, some of them at least, uh, originated as kind of um, working guidelines for the scientific revolution. And somehow they became uh, absorbed into the culture and the, and the sort of mindset of the culture as if they were proven and complete truths. Very interesting. Not proven and uh, not complete truths. And similarly with uh, those Dharma views of the process or interconnectedness or whatever, vast awareness, whatever it is. So these are perspectives, and it's really, really important to, to, to emphasize this and to realize this. Absolutely crucial. Everything hinges on this. Realizing um, what is a perspective and what is not a truth, a complete truth. And then the question with um, perspectives or ways of looking, what I call ways of looking, is what does this perspective, what does this way of looking bring? What does it open and what does it close? What does it unfold? What are the um, effects of looking through this way of looking, this perspective, this lens? And what are the effects uh, of looking through another way of looking, another perspective? This is the golden question, if you like, the, for me, the golden Dharma question. So what do these perspectives bring, and what do others bring, rather than this is a truth? And, <clears throat> um, in the context of the teachings of this retreat, what does soul need? What kind of perspectives, what kind of views, what kind of conceptual frameworks does soul and soulfulness need? Because that is a deeply important question for the being, for our being. So there's these contexts um, that we live and move and kind of uh, try and uh, arrange, uh, if you like, follow the pathway of our life and our practice in the context of views of Assumptions of personhood, cosmos, imagination. And then, and then we have something like the notion of self-expression. To express myself, or, um, uh, and, and how important that has come to be in, in modern culture. For us, something that wasn't, I alluded to this earlier, which wasn't really a, uh, an issue at all in, in other cultures or in, in the Buddhist time. And self-expression, it's alive for us. It's something important we might not speak in those terms or we might feel very inhibited when it comes towards that and want to shove away shove it away as a concept because it's so painful for us not even realize that we're doing that but in this context or in some of these contexts of of, of views of personhood or cosmos um, for instance if I'm clinging to a view that the atomized process is really the reality then self-expression is is a ridiculous notion and any emphasis on that is just ridiculous. Who cares? It's just an atomized process. It just might as well be a machine. Or, uh, in the context of um, this modernist cosmos, an essentially, essentially meaningless universe. Self-expression is a kind of, again, it becomes, maybe not ridiculous, but... Um, there's a disjunct there. 
self-expression, oftentimes that's where a sense of meaningfulness comes in our life, or we generate a sense of meaningfulness, but it's kind of divorced, or there's a, there's a disjunct, I'd say, because all that is taking place in the context of a, this vast universe of essentially meaningless matter, and we, somewhere we've been told that's the reality. And so anything to do with self-expression is kind of dwarfed by that, but also it, 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 anything to do with our meaningfulness, our sense of meaningfulness, it, it does not derive in any objective way from the universe. It has no place in the universe. It's alien in the universe, dwarfed and alien, facing a void of meaningful, meaninglessness. I'm trying to think it's self-generated, therefore kind of illusory, because this self, despite the interconnectedness at the level of physicality, maybe ideas, is essentially a strange, alien, um, minuscule entity in a vast universe of essential meaninglessness. And that is the real reality, the objective reality. So it, it does something, these views do, do something quite potent to notions of self-expression or meaningfulness. Or, in relation to um, the way we think about and view uh, self-expression or personhood, is, is that these, these contexts, philosophical contexts, often unexplored, often unquestioned, often half-conscious, they constrain how we think about and view personhood and self-expression, these kind of things. So that, for example, um, what we've been talking about um, a little bit as one possibility of seeing a person, my person or another person, as a theophany, as a uh, image or vision or portal uh, expression or face over the divine as uh, uh, a being, an angel, expressing the divine, through which the divine uh, shows itself in a certain form, diaphanous to, translucent to the divine, to what wants to come through. We talked about this, that the desire is not so much in me, what wants to come through me. It's something I'm not separate from, that divine that wants to come through, that angel that wants to come through, and what it wants. But it's also more than me somehow, other than me, both. And this divine is this this um, divinity or angel that wants to come through. It's in a particular form, particular, in a particular personhood. So it's a different concept elaborate on this later, is a different conception of the divine than just that the divine is shining through everything because it shines through everything universally because all is one. Or it shines through everything that has awareness or whatever because awareness is what's divine and therefore anything that has awareness. This is a different vision or sense, if you like, of the person and personhood. So, because of the cultural context, the philosophical context, um, and oftentimes we don't really think of, of any of this as philosophy, there um, is a constraining, a constricting of um, the range of possible ways of seeing and sensing the person. 
And I'm interested uh, in widening that the range of possible ways of seeing, of viewing, of sensing personhood, mine and others. So can we, what is it, for instance, to see and to sense the other vividly in, in, a, in a beautiful and rich and deep way, the other of self as a portal, if you like, for soul, for something much bigger, for soul worlds, for the divine, etc.? Now, as I've uh, said before, as we've discussed before, a little bit wrapped up, very much fundamental to this uh, context, these contexts of views and assumptions uh, in, in, in which we move and conceive and in which the teachings land. And, uh, is the whole question of reality and what is real. And we've touched on this. There's different aspects. Um, but in relation to, for example, um, imagination, this view of physicalism, of that the physical is, is the only thing that's real, um, that, among other uh, aspects, which I've talked about before and I'll come back to, um, that means that we tend to view, or the culture tends to view, imagination as unreal. We say imaginary, with a kind of derogatory sense to it for the most part. We've touched on this, I'm, I'm reviewing. Um, and that was one of the main reasons why Henri Corbin coined this term imaginal, rather than imaginary, um, to, if you like, uh, escape or set it aside from the kind of... Um, de- derogatory views and assumptions that, that imagination has in the culture. I'm talking about a different way of approaching the imagination, different way of relating to the imagination, which becomes something um, valuable and, and has a certain reality to it. So for people like Henri Corbin, for William Blake, for Walter Wink, a, a Christian theologian with a quite sophisticated philosophical um, background and understanding uh, for Buddhist Tantra and I'm thinking particularly in in the sort of um, very beautiful worked out systems of of Tantra that you get um, in some of the streams in Tibet I'm thinking particularly of uh, Longchenpa and Mipam in the Nyingma tradition Um, for for these people the imaginal is actually more real than matter so there's a, uh, a, a, a turning upside down, if you like, of the usual uh, cultural view that we now inhabit. Now, the question of what matter is is something I'm going to actually touch on a little bit later. Um, but the view is that the imaginal actually has, in a way, if you like, more reality than matter. Um, someone I don't know too much about, Swedenborg, uh, was a sort of mystic and visionary uh, in in the Christian tradition. Um, I can't remember exactly when he lived, a couple of centuries ago. Um, And uh, this is just a passage from uh, a writer, uh, not quite sure how to pronounce his name, Sheslau Milos, I think, uh, writing about Swedenborg and about the way he held uh, the reality of the imaginal. So he writes, Swedenborg's 
detailed descriptions in, in his imaginal practice, from his imaginal practice. So it involves detailed descriptions of beautiful gardens, their trees and their flowers in heaven, of slums, dirt and ruins in hell, do not mean that he believed they existed other than in imagination. So he understood this is in imagination, and this this imaginal world, what he's calling heaven and hell, and within a Christian sort of uh, theological and conceptual framework. But, he continues, Milosh continues, but imagination is the most real existence. So yes, it's imagination, but, but the way he's viewing that kind of imaginal experience is um, with a whole different, um, it's giving it a whole different ontological validity. It's the most real existence. For Sweden, Swedenborg and for William Blake, etc., this other world, this world of the imaginal, is more real than any physical place. So there's quite a different view going on. And when we, um, <clears throat> as I mentioned in, in, in the opening talk, in the introductory talk, when we come to all this and try to say, well, how do these things fit together? We understand, or we think we understand, matter and uh, the experience of conventional reality. This is a table, that's a chair, etc. And then there's the imaginal. And how, and the psychic phenomena and all that, how does it all fit together? What kind of um, conceptual framework will uh, present to us or outline to us the, the truth of what is real here? What reality does all, what is the reality of all this and the reality status of all this? So the easy, if you like, an unexplored um, option is just to, as I said, um, follow without too much questioning um, what's given to us culturally. But when we start exploring, start questioning and probing these things through practice, through experimentation, through um, uh, dialogue and philosophy, etc., and in our experience, um, realize, oh, it's, it's not that simple. As I said, I don't pretend to have the answer, and I don't think anyone's really worked it out, as far as I can tell. And so what you get nowadays is uh, people approaching this in two kind of broad ways. So, actually three. One is, as I said, this sort of just going along with the assumptions of modernist culture, and kind of poo-pooing the imaginal any as just imaginary and a waste of time, etc. Um, and so reality becomes, even if people uh, dismiss using uh, words like truth and reality, actually a default, what's operating in, in, in their philosophy is a default assumption about what's real. But more sophisticated... Um, some philosophers and people nowadays would um, admit that contrary to the modernist assumption, which is there is um, uh, a view or a way of looking um, that reveals reality. And it's this view re reveals reality, whether it's scientific materialism or translated to the modern Dharma world is actually mindfulness or bare attention reveals reality or whatever. But contrary to this sort of singularity of view or belief, that singularity of view exposes and reveals reality, and there is one view that, that reveals it. 
um, which is often either explicit or hidden in someone's uh, philosophy or approach or dharma even, uh, even if they say that's not the case. Contrary to that, more sophisticated philosophical approach that's quite popular is is, is this acknowledging, sort of postmodern um, realization, acknowledging that any individual perspective will be incapable of capturing the truth of things or the reality or the way things uh, are really. And therefore, there's the necessity of multiple perspectives. Um, just by virtue of, uh, if you like, a difference in uh, the, 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 if you like, the level at which r- reality exists. So one analogy, I got this from um, Sanford Drob, who's a philosopher who in particular writes, um, uh, well, he writes a lot about the uh, postmodernism and also the um, influence of Hegel and other ideas, but also on Jewish Kabbalah in the contemporary context. Um, and he had this anal- He has this analogy of um, the way maps of the globe work to try to represent um, in two dimensions um, something that actually exists in three dimensions. So uh, I don't know much about this, but there's something called the Mercator projection. So when you're making a map of the world in, like in an atlas in two dimensions, um, it will necessarily be distorted. And uh, there's also kind of political ramifications of this, but it makes certain countries look much bigger than they are, and other countries or continents look much smaller than they are. Um, and then there's other systems, I don't know the names, I think one's called Gold Peters, there's other system of translating the three-dimensional to the two-dimensional map, um, which make different countries look bigger and smaller. And so it so you suddenly see, wow, Af- Africa is important because it's huge, um, or India, or, or and uh, etc. And countries like <laughs> are really tiny. Um, so, but there's the acknowledgement that neither is really, if you like, an accurate um, capturing or description or translation of reality necessarily. The, the reality being in three dimensions, necessarily we um, acknowledge that there's some distortions when I try and translate that, represent that three-dimensional reality in two dimensions. And so that's a kind of um, physical analogy of, of the, our, our existential and philosophical situation. The assumption there, or implied in all that, is that there is some kind of objective reality to the way things are, to the universe, to things. It is there, but it's not certainly not obvious, and it's not really translatable or expressible to the human consciousness, to the human mind. Um, but the assumption is it does exist in an objective, sort of independent of the human mind. It's just that it's not articulatable, if you like, in, in our, at our level. This has parallels. That kind of thinking, or that kind of um, view and assumption, has parallels. Some of you may may have heard of a physicist. He's dead now, called David Bohm. He had some dialogues with Krishnamurti a little bit, and um, now he was not so keen on some of the implications, for instance, of quantum physics, which seemed to be uh, seemed to be to many people Im- implying this sort of 
non-objective status of uh, the, the uh, of reality of things of atoms that uh, uh, an electron or whatever it is a particle does not exist in any way independent of our observing of it it doesn't exist as a thing in a place at a certain time with a certain energy with a certain speed or mass all of that is very much contingent very much dependent on the way of looking um, in a way that's uh, has a lot of parallels with, with emptiness teachings. Um, so some people, including Einstein, were really not comfortable with some of the implications of these discoveries that were made in the early part of the 20th century, the first um, 30 or 40 years. Um, and that, that some of what they seem to be implying. So David Bohm had uh, wrote a book called Wholeness and the Implicate Order, and, and sort of trying to work out a system of physics which, akin to what Drob was saying about the masses, it gives an objective reality at a certain level, um, but recognizes that what we then perceive looks like, um, uh, has all these strange features to it uh, that quantum mechanics describes, but it's not actually the reality. In other words, again, there is this objective independent reality, um, and it's just uh, that that cannot be translated or be made visible uh, to us so that it gives rise to these strange effects when it's translated to our level of experience, perception, and um, translation. Now, it's interesting, around all that stuff, uh, quantum mechanics and its philosophical implications, a lot of physicists just um, ignore the philosophical questions that quantum mechanics gives rise to. Uh, I've talked about some of this in other talks, but... Um, and... and uh, very few of them actually pursue it, um, and of those that do, um, some, like David Bohm, will be drawn to the project of um, finding an objective reality. And in a way, of course they are, because that's what drew them to physics in the first place, probably, the idea that there is a reality that one can discover and capture in certain um, uh, formulations or equations or conceptions, etc. So the whole um, beauty and romance and attraction of the, the project of physics for physicists is is to be is is to discover what that objective reality is. That's the whole scientific project. So a lot about the quantum revolution really, in a way, um, can be philosophically challenging to the very fundaments of 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 the scientific revolution and the ideas that came in the um, conceptions and the assumptions that actually became embedded after the scientific revolution. But anyhow, that's one sort of more sophisticated philosophical approach, is assuming that there is an objective reality. Um, if you like, it's just not capturable or translatable, obviously, like the 2D, 3D um, necessary distortions. And a third possibility. Um, so compare that, the second possibility, assuming there's an objective reality, if you like, hard to get our heads around, if you like, or impossible to get our heads around completely. 
and compare that with with a non-realist, non-reificationist conceptual framework. And what do I mean by that? So we humans have a tendency, a deep-seated tendency. I would say this is what the Buddha is pointing to very, very fundamentally in his teachings. We have uh, a strong inclination and attachment to assume an objective reality to things. Selves, things, world, time, objects, etc. What would it be to approach this question of reality and have as a basis for our whole um, way of approaching things, including the Dharma, a non-realist conceptual framework. We don't reify um, uh, anything as um, ultimate, um, ultimately real, or this is the way things really are. Any conceptual framework. And what would it be What would it be, or is it possible, to put the Dharma thoroughly on a non-reifying basis of emptiness? So this, to me, is so important. It opens so many doors. It's so... I can't emphasize it enough, to me, how how, um, uh, fundamental... uh, and fundamentally different that would be. Can we do that? Can we, if you like put the Dharma, or realize the Dharma, realize a Dharma, if you like, shape and conceive of the Dharma absolutely thoroughly, completely, on a non-reifying basis of emptiness. That means emptiness, this understanding of a non-realist perspective, actually becomes the total fundamental of everything in the Dharma. The whole Dharma is on that basis. This, I think that's actually quite rare in the Dharma world. So everyone, you, you ask anyone <coughs> who's been around uh, in the Dharma for a while, everyone would agree on the word empty. Yes, of course, emptiness and emptiness. But the meaning um, is very, very different. There's all kinds of, uh, there's a whole range of what people actually mean when they use the word empty or emptiness. So what I mean and what I want would like to really, as I said, um, Place as 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 the basis, as the the foundation for the whole understanding and practice of Dharma is not the sense of emptiness means things or selves are just a process in time of smaller units, moments, or aggregates, or whatever it is, and not just, for example, the teaching of interconnectedness or or certain of them other teachings. I'm talking about something much more radical than any of that. Much deeper and much more total. Because in, for example, that um, process view, the elements of the process are still, they still are given a certain reality. So I'm talking about something utterly total. Everything, without question, is empty. And even the, the deepest, more ingrained concepts of space, of time, of awareness, all that is empty, thoroughly. So what often happens in the Dharma is people say, yes, yes, of course, emptiness, or empty, of course things are empty, or of course this or that is empty. But then it's almost like it, it becomes uh, something that's easily forgotten about 
in practice. It's like, yes, yes, of course. And then one engages um, practices or views that, uh, if you like, ignore or don't incorporate the understanding of emptiness. So uh, the whole um, idea of bare attention or the whole, when we bring into um, practice the question, is this moment enough? Uh, and the whole rhetoric of this moment, or what is, or presence, uh, so pervasive um, in Western spirituality, whether it's Buddha, Dharma, or other spirituals, so pervasive, th- these kind of notions of this moment, and what is, and being present, and, and all that. And all of that rhetoric, all of that, those kind of teachings, um, helpful as they are at a certain level, they actually reinforce this reification, this making real of something. As a very helpful at one level, as sort of um, some possibilities, kind of like, if you like, for, for beginners. Uh, and... and particularly for beginners, because they, it seems basic. It's like, I can get my head around that. Oh, this moment of being present. It's very, they sound so simple as concepts, so attractive because of their simplicity, because they seem so basic. Ah, that's good. And it seems as if uh, I'm, I'm meeting reality on a basic, undistorted level. But that basicness, if you like, becomes very, very quickly a basis a basis for then the whole of the Dharma and the whole worldview and all the rest of it. So the unquestioned assumption of the reality of this moment, the unquestioned assumptions of um, bare attention is meeting or this is the the basic experience or whatever it is, um, that unquestioned assumption takes root and, and it creates, it fabricates experience in line with that assumption. And so it seems that way, and it perpetuates an experience of this or that, or this moment, or this bare attention, or as a reality. And then I'm left with, I just need to align with the reality or this moment. I need to be with what is or this moment. I need to accept what is, open to what is, love what is, what, whatever the, the ways we put is, lovely, beautiful, very, very helpful, but only to a, certain, to a certain level, quite limited. The basis there is a realist one and not a non-realist one. The basis then of that kind of dharma is not um, in emptiness, even though, as I said, a person might say, yes, yes, of course, everything's empty. Uh, or they might say, yes, yes, I agree with emptiness, and it means something different by emptiness. So that's real. Other things are empty. This moment, this bare attention, this uh, process is real. And I can be with that. That becomes the basis, the realist basis, rather than a non-realist basis. A non-realist basis is much, much more radical. Hard, hard, as the Buddha said, hard to see, hard to understand, discernible only by the wise. So what about, instead of that, Instead of a philosophy that assumes an objective reality, instead of the kind of spiritual teachings that basically have a basis in a, a, um, a, a reificationism of some kind or the other, what about a basis for the Dharma in the 
exploration, the, the exploration through practice and through reflection, but mostly through practice, uh, an exploration and understanding of the fabrication of perception. What about that as a basis, as, as a summary, if you like, of what the Dharma really is? How it works, how it all fits together. An exploration through practice and understanding, uh, a deepening of, of the insight into the fabrication of perception, of appearance, experience. And using those three words interchangeably, perception, experience, appearance. And then eventually as that deepens, the understanding that fabrication too, as, as an understanding, as a concept, is also empty. What about that as a sort of nutshell explanation of what the Dharma is, and as a basis for what the Dharma is? That gives um, a very, very different sense of of everything, of what the universe is and the world, and what experience is, and also a very different sense of what uh, the Dharma is. Now, some people might hear that and um, and say, well, questioning reality in that way sounds kind of abstract uh, and intellectual. Uh, and that's unfortunate because it really is not abstract. It might be a reaction, but we're really talking about practice here and something that's very possible and very engaged and direct and palpable in its effects. Or a person might hear this um, teaching about fabrication and, and sort of say, not quite understand, say, oh, so you just kind of fabricate something, you make up something so you feel better. But in that kind of, sounds like a question, it's a statement really, or judgment, it's really betraying a uh, uh, reificationism. You're making up something else. There is a reality, you're making up something different. It's betraying uh, delusional, what the Buddha would call delusional reificationism. So rather than this kind of um, <clears throat> reifying basis and understanding about what is or this moment, rather than that, what about a sense or a, a discovery, an opening through practice and through insight that this moment is co-created with me, with the sense of self, even the most subtle sense of self, just the bare sense of consciousness or vast awareness. This moment is co-created with me, any sense of self, with, co-created with the way of looking, with the state and the inclination, and the assumptions and the conceptions of the chitta. It's mutually dependent, mutually contingent and not separate with that. All of that, the way of looking, the, the self, the subject and object, are mutually dependent and not separate. And then this moment becomes something thoroughly empty, along with the self, along with the way of looking and consciousness and all of it. Thoroughly empty, magical. And when we assume that this so-called bare experience that I might have through mindfulness practice or whatever is real. When I assume that even tacitly, even without realizing that I'm assuming it, unconsciously, it constrains 
that assumption operating constrains the way of ways of looking that are possible for me, the kind of views, the kind of lenses through which I can look at experience. There's a constriction there of the possibilities, the range, um, through the assumption of, of reality. And because the ways of looking are constrained that way, then the experience, the range of experience, of perception of what actually appears in terms of the experiences of self, of other, the experiences of the world, uh, of time, of space, of things like desire and eros, of cosmos, all of that gets constricted too. The range of perception, of experience I can have of all of that. And as one gets deeper into the teachings of emptiness and realizes actually is a constriction too in the conceptual frameworks because I'm assuming what's real, tied up in that is a whole conceptual framework. Again, I might not even realize it. I might not even be able to articulate it. I might not even have thought about it ever. It might be unconscious. But there's a, um, a conceptual framework operating. That assumption of reality constrains not only my experience, my ways of looking there for my experience, but also my conceptual frameworks that I can entertain, move between. It constrains my hermeneutics, if you like, my, uh, it's a fancy word for me, meaning my, my ways of um, interpreting experience, interpreting um, cosmos and the world that I'm in. Reading, if you like, this uh, field of experience. And all of that constrains the freedoms that are possible for me and constrains the creativity of existence constrains to the sense of beauty that's possible and the sense of the range of beauty. Remember we were talking about this before. What is the range of beauty that's possible for me as a human being? What kinds of beauty can the soul open to and know and taste and wonder at? So deep, radical, total emptiness, that realization, that level of insight actually allows so much more as I, as I, as I, as I, that insight deepens, it allows so much more, it allows for example cosmopoesis, this word that I used uh, the other day, this um, opening of the possibilities of seeing, of sensing, of really inhabiting a different cosmos feeling oneself in, perceiving um, a magical cosmos, a divine cosmos, a cosmos like this or that, the range of, if you like, um, poetic possibility, cosmopoesis, the idea of creating different cosmic, cosmological poems, poems of the cosmos, it opens possibilities through insight, through deep radical, total insight into emptiness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.